Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Realm presents Book Burners, Season 4, Episode 8. Manchu had created a safe haven deep in the off-limits area of London, in a formerly fashionable curry restaurant whose regular customers had fled. It still smelled of spices, and something about the light and hush seemed just as holy to him as any cathedral. When he was in, he hung his wooden cross on the door, the one from the maitress, which still had no function as far as he could tell, next to a sign offering counseling and contemplation. After a moment's thought, he'd added a second sign beneath the first, saying that all faiths were welcome and respected here. A new flock had assembled more quickly than he would have expected. People in crisis whose lives had been turned upside down. People who did not know what to believe. Some were Catholic, but most were not. All of them were people who had been changed and felt that they had nowhere to turn for help, not even in weird London. Until now. Today, Manchu had only a single congregant. Checkers was one of Manchu's first visitors and one of his most difficult. The young man had always been a cocksure alpha male, or so he described himself. He'd worked in banking and measured himself by numbers, mostly the zeros in his bank account. Now, he was covered with sores that never healed. He had thorns sprouting from his body. His face had melted, and his joints ached unless he was submerged in water. This had caused other problems for him. He had lost his job, and his wife had left him. Checkers had no idea how to build a new life, when he knew the new could not look anything like the old. This afternoon, Manchu handed him a bowl of palak paneer when he came in. The curry shop's owners had thrown themselves into feeding the afflicted of weird London, and an ad hoc group of families had pooled their resources to try to feed, house, and clothe its changed citizens, while the official government and insurance companies argued about whose responsibility it was to pay— what counted as a disability now, whether this was an act of God that freed them from any obligation. Checkers stared into his bowl. I was thinking about Ibiza today, he said. Juliana went there when she left me, and I realized I could never go there again. And why is that? Menchu asked. Look at me, father. I'm a fucking nightmare come to life. I can't even go out in the daytime anymore. The change hadn't affected Checker's voice, a hypnotic and beautiful baritone. The world will come to accept you, 
Manchu said. But what if it doesn't? Manchu paused. On second thought, he couldn't make any promises. First, you have to accept yourself. I know what people are like. Fuck, I know what I was like. Do you think everyone is like that? Checkers didn't answer. Do you think I'm like that? No, of course not. Checker sighed and stirred the food in his bowl. The bell on the door sang. Father Menchu knew from the silhouette that it was Mrs. Kim, though she hesitated a moment before entering. Her distinctive shock of tail feathers tumbled out from the hem of her jacket and spread a foot wide all the way to the ground. The feathers curled and red-brown like a rooster Menchu had once known. Her eyes were red from crying, and she had a flyer in her hand. She showed it to him shyly. I found this on my door, she said. There was a cartoon of her surrounded by flames. The caricature was both racist and poorly drawn. Below it was a slogan Menchu had seen popping up on posters around the city. Purify London. He knew what purification meant in this circumstance. He'd seen that kind of ugliness before. Menchu tore the note to pieces. Don't let them frighten you. Mrs. Kim hung her head. They're trying their best to frighten me, father. Do they ever touch you? They try to get feathers from my tail sometimes. Her tail shivered at the memory. But usually they are after my neighbors. Just children, cowards. Who is it? Young men, she said. Mostly students. They are not in school since the emergency. I know I should turn the other cheek, father, but it is difficult. I want to make them leave me alone. Please, can you teach me how to forgive them? Then she appraised her. She was barely five feet tall and round. She looked almost as fearsome as a new kitten. But even kittens had claws, and Manchu didn't see street bullies listening to the same kinds of philosophic reasoning about peace and love that checkers needed. Well, different people had different needs. And Manchu's role was to see that the needs of his people were met. Sometimes that was a need for love, for gentle correction, for food. Sometimes those needs were different. Perhaps your role is not to forgive them, but to be a guardian to those weaker than you. Mrs. Kim, please take your coat off, he said, and let me show you how to make a fist. Libby bought Liam a cup of weak tea in a coffee shop full of office workers just outside the weird zone. All right, here's the concept, said Libby. You take us around to the weirdest parts of weird London like a tour guide. We've been having trouble with our film, but I have a good feeling that today things are going to turn around. She glared at John. If somebody can keep the camera straight and stops accidentally deleting the files. The cameraman just shrugged at this accusation like he'd already given up on arguing about it. Liam shoveled his feet under the table. You think, oh, you don't know. Know what? Libby snapped. Magic and technology don't always mix, he said. Cameras, cell phones, if you're in the thick of it, it can be a bad idea to even try to use them. There can be uh, unintended circumstances. So it wasn't John's fault? I said I was careful, John said, as if she had agreed with him the whole time. I always take my time to get it right. Libby put her head in her hands. Oh, Jesus, if it wasn't his fault, that means it's impossible, Liam said helpfully. Libby made claws with her hands. No, it can't be impossible. 
Where there's a will, there's a way. Liam shrugged. You're the director, but I know magic. You're sure about this? Yeah. Libby's face clearly showed as each fresh impact in the cascade of implications struck her. Is that why the wall of teeth? That's why nobody can film anything except that. Because of the magnetic field? It's magic, Liam said flatly. Libby drummed her fingers on the table. What if he used a telephoto lens? Liam shrugged. I guess you could try. No audio, though, John said. We could mic him. The mic wouldn't work, Liam said. Like phones don't. His phone buzzed in his pocket, and he picked it up, grateful for the escape hatch from that particular conversation. You're the ginger, right? Said a voice at the other end. That was starting to get old. My name is Liam. My nephew says you can help. I need you here right now. I have a problem with the the weird. You have to come right away. Is anyone in danger? I'm in danger, the voice snapped. He gave an address far enough that Liam would have to take a cab. Hurry, and we'll pay extra. Liam stuck his phone back in his pocket. You want something interesting to film? He told Libby. Come with me, but keep a distance. Maybe we'll get you some interesting footage after all. The address turned out to be a very nice apartment building, well out of the area where Liam would have expected to find magic. Asante had said something about floating bubbles of magic. Maybe one of them had settled somewhere a little farther away than usual. That was going to be more and more of a problem. A short man with a hipster beard and plaid shirt met them in the lobby. Ginger, he called to Liam. About time you made it here. Liam looked him up and down. You don't sound like a man who wants my help now, do you? Sorry, sorry. The man held his hands up. Owen McManus. This is my building, and I shouldn't even be dealing with this, but the property manager ran away and won't take my calls. I didn't know where else to turn. Show me the problem, Liam said. It's plants in the ventilation ducts, Owen said. He adjusted his thick-framed glasses. They've clogged the whole place up. Well, almost all of it. You called me for a gardening problem? Liam crossed his arms. Bloody plants. Just what he needed. The plants have eyeballs, Owen said. Libby grinned. Oh, if we can get that on film, it'll be perfect. Owen unlocked a service closet and gestured inside. See? The far wall was covered with a thickly leaved vine, veined purple and silver. It had fruited, and true to Owen's word, the fruit was eyeballs, heavy-lidded and sporting purple silver irises. They all turned to watch Liam, blinking sleepily at the interruption. Completely blocking the ducks. Owen said, almost. Uh, the HVAC system nearly burned itself out before we spotted the problem. And it's freaking out my tenants. These things have sprung from just about every vent we've got in the whole building. Libby elbowed John. Test it, she said. Please, God, let this be filmable. Liam ignored them. And you try just yanking the vines out, right? You try it and see, Owen said. He shuddered. Liam pulled on a glove. Then he reached in and plucked a tendril of the plant off the main vine. The vine sizzled and a new replacement grew from the wound. The one in Liam's hand wilted immediately, the eye twitching and then going dull. Within seconds, it had been replaced. The new eye watched Liam warily. Aha, I see. We tried pulling it out at the root, but it doesn't seem to have a root. Can you help? Owen asked. You keep saying that this thing has almost taken over your building, Liam said. 
what's the almost? Just one apartment isn't involved. The Bahars on the fifth floor, Owen said. Do you think this is their fault? Not likely, but it can't hurt to check and see why they're so lucky. Liam limbered his neck and shoulders. Let's go take a look. Owen led them to the elevator, but when he pressed it, the light in the button flickered madly and then went dark. A silvery purple tendril crept out through the slit between the elevator doors. Leaves spread wide, then fruited. The new eyeball stared at them. Owen jumped back. Jesus Christ. John, did you get that? Libby asked. Don't know, John replied. Have to check later. Let's just take the stairs, Liam said. The Bahars proved to be a tiny pair of older sisters with silver hair, wrinkled up like raisins that had been unaccountably wrapped in matching floral dressing gowns, one red and one purple. I keep telling Owen we don't have a problem with that plant, said one. We promised we'd call if anything turned up. Just let us look around, Owen said. This is Liam, he's an expert in this sort of thing. The second woman, the one in the purple dressing gown, purred at Liam. Aren't you a sturdy one, she said. Stay as long as you like. Liam winked at her. Couldn't hurt to play to her vanity. Just doing my job, ma'am. He stepped into the apartment. It was immediately obvious why the vines were avoiding this apartment. The place was lined with shelves, and those shelves were swaybacked under the weight of china and crystal that held them, and more to the point, the silver. Silver platters, silver tea services, salt cellars, fruit bowls. There were rows and rows of tiny silver vessels of a kind Liam didn't even recognize. The purple-clad sister followed his gaze. Not cups, she said, and somehow she made it sound raunchy. The red sister nodded with deep pride. We have a service for 60, she said. The family has them from the time of the Inquisition. It's very lucky. Mystery solved, Liam thought. Magic avoiding a stash of ancient silver was about as solid an expectation as there could be in these matters. Lucky indeed, he said. Can I borrow one? You won't hurt it, will you? Red asked. I'll allow us it might get tarnished, he said, but that's all, probably. The nut cup was heavier than it looked. On closer inspection, Liam found it was embossed with vines and flowers. Fitting. Back in the hallway, Liam found a ventilation duct with telltale edges of leaves peeping out through the slats. He pulled the grill off. The screws came away as if they'd been anchored in sand. Hey, careful, Owen said. You could have waited for a screwdriver. Sure, and Seymour here would start eating people while we took the time, Liam said. He brandished the nut cup at the stupid plant. Being eaten by a plant is not a good time. Trust me, I know. The nearest leaves shivered and flinched back from the silver. Liam shoved the piece of silver further into the vent. The vine shrieked, a piercing sound that hurt Liam's teeth. Where the silver brushed against the leaves, the plant dissolved into a silvery burst of smoke from the point of contact on up to the tips of the vine, then dissipated. Try not to breathe it, Liam told Owen. But it looks like this is the answer. We'll have to go into the basement to cut this thing out where it started. Assuming it started in the basement. I'm not sure, Owen said, probably. Livy and John set up a tripod and half a dozen lights and reflecting umbrellas in the basement while Liam surveyed the situation. 
The problem seemed to originate in the boiler. The vines spiraled around the pipes, piercing through them before snaking into every hidden crevice it could find. Good thing it's not winter, Liam said, or you might have had a real problem. This isn't a real problem, Owen asked darkly. Look, are you going to be done with this soon? I have to pay for alternate accommodation for all of my residents if we can't get this cleared up by tonight, and we're talking about quite a lot of money. Gian turned on the softbox light. It half blinded Liam. Do you mind? He asked. I need to be able to see what I'm doing here. You can manage, Libby said. Can you stand just a little more to the right? There, good. Liam shook his head, then turned back to the vine. Let's see how this goes. He approached the thickest parts of the vine and jabbed the silver nut cup at it. The vine screamed and turned to smoke. Belatedly, Liam pulled the neck of his shirt up over his mouth and nose. Zoom in, zoom in, Libby whispered to John. He's blocking it, John said. We're not getting anything. Liam attacked more of the vine and bit by bit, the plant disappeared. After a few moments, it began to grow back from the places where it had been previously vanquished but much more slowly, and this time the eyes were smaller and sleepier. Can you be a little more dramatic? Libby asked. No, Liam said. He evaporated another length of vine. Oi, landlord, you're gonna need to do some preventative measures to keep this stuff away. What is it? I'll do anything. Find a bunch of old silver and hang it around this level, he said. Bury it in the foundations, tie it to the pipes, doesn't matter. Just make sure to have something every 10 feet or so. And that should keep the problem from coming back? Should do, yeah. The more silver you use and the older it is, the better the protection. He removed the last cluster of leaves in sight. This time, the vine didn't make any sound. Owen shook his hand vigorously. I want you on retainer, he said. If we run into a problem like this again, I need to know I've got somebody to turn to. Liam shrugged. Fine with me. We need to be your first priority, Owen continued. Of course, we'll pay for the privilege. I'll take your money, Liam said, but if there's another giant dragon running around, that is first priority, not you. It's no use me getting rid of your gardening issues or the whole world is turning into teeth and tentacles in the meanwhile. Owen considered this. Fair, he said at last. I'll have my people draw up a contract. Libby caught up with Liam outside. We were just looking at the footage and it's terrible, she said. You're blocking our view most of the time, and when there is anything on camera, it's blobby and boring. Is there any way you can come up with something more spectacular, something with a little more wow factor? Not really, Liam said. We were lucky today. Libby chewed on her bottom lip. I see. If that's the case, then we're going to have to do this the old-fashioned way. You may not be on an elite team of investigators fighting the dangers of magic, but that doesn't mean you have to be defenseless when it comes to protecting your data online. Lucky for you, our partners at NordVPN know their way around the World Wide Web. VPN stands for Virtual Private Network, which creates a sort of encrypted tunnel while you're online, protecting your private data like bank details and passwords so you can browse safely wherever you are in the world. In addition to providing you with a high level of security online, my favorite use of NordVPN is to virtually switch my location, so I can watch movies and shows that aren't currently available in my area. Plus, that way I can still access my favorite content when I'm traveling as well. I'm a fan of pretty much 
any British TV show, but they aren't always available in the US. So with NordVPN, I can virtually travel across the pond to enjoy my telly. NordVPN is also the fastest VPN in the world, and you can get all that speed, protection, and virtual locations for the price of just a coffee a month. To get the best discount off your NordVPN plan, go to nordvpn.com bookburners. Our link will also give you four extra months on the two-year plan. There's no risk with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee. We can imagine many potential futures. Some serve as inspiration, others, warnings. Wondery offers one possibility of the future in their new show, The Last City. The year is 2072, and the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geo-engineered paradise that protects fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. Demetria Lopez heads up Pura's public relations, tirelessly promoting the city's idyllic image. But when she stumbles upon a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Four. When Liam slipped into the school that evening, there was a light glowing from the gym. He followed it to its source and found Sal alone on the mat doing crunches. She stopped when she saw him. Want to go a few rounds? She asked. Been a long time since I punched you the way you deserve. Not now. It's been a long day. Liam rubbed the bridge of his nose where the sour scent of the climbing plant had settled in his sinuses. Listen, he said. I have a favor I wanted to ask. No, Liam, you can't borrow my sword. He jumped. No, no, I meant that was exactly what he'd meant. Just, just for tomorrow? For a little bit? Liam, if you took that thing into a fight, I don't know if you'd get murdered or cut your own feet off first. And anyway, the maitress gave it to me, not to you. Sal rolled onto her belly and started doing push-ups. Liam thought bitterly of the little sprig of plant the maitress had given him. Worst gift ever. He took a deep breath. Nobody will get hurt. I just need it for filming, as a prop, you know? I wouldn't actually fight anything with it. You're not going to leave me alone until I say yes, are you? Nope. Sal groaned. Fine, just get it back with both of you in one piece and no scratches. Deal. Liam grinned. Then he remembered Perry and his illness and how Sal still probably didn't know about it. It wasn't right, but he was in an untenable position. Liam's brain ran like a hamster on a wheel, trying to find a way to tell her without telling her. It wasn't his place, but she needed to know. The team had suffered enough from secrets. And, well, Sal was saying how he needed to show more initiative. Hey, uh, one more thing. He cleared his throat. Yeah, check in on Perry the last couple of days. Sal sat up and tipped her head to the side. Check in on him? Why would I? She launched herself from the ground, concern written all over her face. Liam, is something going on? Talk to him, Liam said. He's... Not well. You can probably still find him in the library with Asante. 
They've been keeping me away from there for a while, but I thought... She shook her head. Thanks for telling me. She grimaced. Sorry for the joke about punching you. That's fine, Liam said. He looked away from the sweat beating in her collarbones. Hey, do you know where Frances is? Well, she said something about coffee. Check the cafeteria. Frances was wearing one of her usual long skirts this time, and no sign of the glittering paint from the other night, either. She was sipping coffee by candlelight and leafing slowly through a book. He leaned in the doorway and watched her from the darkness for a few minutes. Her cheek was velvet in the low light, and the curve of her neck and shoulder graceful. She was a mystery, Francis. He might not be able to solve it. He knocked on the door jamb, and she turned to see him. Oh, Liam, would you like some coffee? Sure. He helped himself to a cup and sat across from her. I was looking for you. For me. Liam fidgeted with the handle of his cup. I needed someone to talk to, and there aren't a lot of ears right now. So you picked me? The reflection off her glasses shielded her expression from him. You're smart, he said, and I trust you to be straight with me. I'm flattered. She pushed away her book. So, what is it? Liam stared at his hands. Everything used to be so simple. Find the magic, punch it until it stops, stick it in a bag, and go home. But now everything has changed. Sal and Grace are together, and Grace is... I don't even know what's going on with her. And Manchu is talking like he's ready to lay down arms. Asante is neck deep in magic and sinking deeper every day. Change isn't always for the worse, she said. If you could take everything back, he said. If you could have back, you know, he gestured at her legs. Would you? No. She smiled. I'm becoming Liam. Do you understand? I'm turning more into myself than I was before. Liam did not understand. He looked at her warily and sat back in his seat. You're changing too, you know. You're not as simple as you used to be. Am I not? Francis laughed. When we first met, I thought you were hot, she said. And then I got to know you a little better and realized what an awful life choice you would be. That got his dander up. His shoulders crept toward his ears. I'm flattered, he said, but his tone was anything but flattered. I'm not sure you're the same person as that anymore, though, Francis said. He scoffed. What, so are you back to thinking I'm hot? She smiled into her coffee, among other things. When Sal arrived at the library, Asante rushed to the entrance to meet her. Sal, I'm so glad you're here. We really need you to make a trip to the British Museum and collect the vial of, at this time of night? Sal made an ostentatious show of looking at the watch she wasn't actually wearing. Asante laughed nervously. Science waits for no man. Is Perry here? Sal asked. I need to see him. It's a bit of a rush, I'm sorry. Asante carried forward as though Sal hadn't said anything. I'm running an experiment, and if I could get a sample right away, it would be a tremendous help to our research. Where's Perry? Sal asked again. Asante blinked, at a loss for a plan B, now that her plan A had evidently failed. Sal would have thought she'd be better at dissembling than that. She pushed past Asante and into the library. Perry, she called. There was a rustling sound. She followed it to find Perry sitting on the floor among the stacks, surrounded by a swamp of picture books open to illustrations of various insects. 
She took stock of his appearance. A little haggard, like he was hungover, and he had an interesting assortment of tiny rag dolls hanging around his wrists and neck. There was a cane leaning against the bookshelves, too. Are you all right? She asked. Fine. Fine. Why do you ask? Sal crossed her arms. You're not going to get up to give me a hug? He tried to stand, but staggered a third of the way up and sat down again, hard. So, that's fine. He looked away. Maybe less than fine. How did you know to ask? A little birdie told me, but I would have figured it out on my own before much longer, she said. It was getting a little suspicious, the way Asante's been shooing me away from here. I'm insulted you think I'm such a bad detective. I don't think that. Sal cleared away a stack of books with diagrams of crickets and sat down. What's going on, Perry? It's nothing. He began to fold up the rest of the picture books, but awkwardly, like his hands weren't properly connected to his wrists. You were never a good liar. He sagged. It's, um, like a magic allergy, he said. I didn't want you to freak out. I'm not freaking out. Aren't you? Sal took a deep breath. You don't have to handle my feelings for me, she said. I'm a big girl, just... Tell me what's going on, all right? All of it. When did it start? What exactly is wrong? What do we need to do to fix it? Fine. Fine, he grimaced. I'll begin at the beginning. It started a little while after London. Livy asked Liam to meet her on a street corner just outside of Weird London two days later in the mid-afternoon. To try to catch the golden hour, she'd said. And she'd reminded him for the hundredth time don't forget that glowing sword of yours. He didn't actually have the glowing sword he'd borrowed from Team One, but he figured Sal's would do just as well. When Liam arrived, he found Jan napping in a canvas folding chair. The camera was already set up, and there was a veritable wall of other material mounted beside him on the ground. Coils of garden hose, mason jars full of slime and fake blood, assortments of rubber insects and prosthetic tentacles. What's all this about? He asked. Libby grinned. I am a genius, she said. We're going to do some dramatic reenactments. What? If we can't get the real thing on film, she said, we'll get close enough. This is stupid, Liam said. I'm not doing it. Libby raised an eyebrow. Do you want to help teach people how to protect themselves from magic or not? Liam took his sword out of the duffel bag where he'd stowed it. Fine. What do you want me to do? What she wanted him to do was exactly what he'd been afraid of. She splashed him with slime and blood, tickled his ribs with the fake tentacles, and made him bat them away with the sword. Asked him to pose in various stances that would be unbalanced and indefensible in a real fight. Liam kept up a steady stream of complaint, and in response, Libby just gave him further direction. Lift the sword higher, no, higher, all the way over your head. Now, grimace like you're in pain. Liam grimaced, all right. Say something dramatic. Like what? Um, thinking. While they filmed, a crowd of onlookers gathered. They nudged each other and whispered commentary. Liam was sure they were talking among themselves about what an idiot he looked like. Finally, Libby asked him to take his shirt off. I can't do this, he said. Bridge too far? Okay, that's fine. Let's just, Liam lowered his sword. No, I think I'm done here. I can't see how anything useful is gonna come from this. At the edge of the crowd, the whispering turned into bellows and shouts. 
Liam turned and noticed that the crowd had grown thicker. Some were carrying signs now, reading Purify London. Some of them had cudgels. A burly man with a snake tattoo pushed his way to the front and loomed over Gian. What bullshit is going on here? He asked. Movie magic, said Gian. Be cool, man. Libby put her hands on her hips. Is there a problem? It's people like you that are keeping us from cleaning up London, Snake Tattoo said. He shoved Libby. I reckon we need to clean you up first. Oi, pick a fight with someone your own size, Liam said. He stepped between Libby and the burly assailant. It's him, said a voice in the crowd. It's the ginger swordsman. Jesus, fuck, had everyone heard of him? Snake Tattoo looked him over. Is it true? You're one of the ones who saved London. The book burners? We don't burn. Ah, oh, hell, what did it even matter? Yeah, I'm a book burner. Thought you'd be a lot taller, said Snake Tattoo. More muscles. He frowned. And I thought you'd be on our side. Are you some kind of traitor to your own kind, then? I'm not a traitor, said Liam. You are. Snake Tattoo swore and took a swing at Liam. Liam dodged it and laid a fist on the other man's jaw. He went down like he'd been switched off. Who wants a piece? Liam asked. He picked up his sword from the ground. Plenty more where that came from, and I'm not in the best of moods. Get it on film, Libby whispered to John. Don't miss this. Two of the man's allies rushed in to try to take Liam down. He drove the air out of one with the pommel of his sword, then turned and kicked the knees out from the other. Some of their friends backed away. What's your problem? whined one of the purifiers. Do you want all of London to weird up? He was thin and sallow, like he didn't get much sun. Suddenly, Liam saw a path not taken. If he hadn't been introduced to magic, if he hadn't been possessed, if he hadn't been a book burner, or even after all of that, before he knew about grace, before everything that had happened to Francis. He used to think magic was a manifestation of evil, but it was just change. Often change like a cancer, growing unstoppably out of control, but it was wrong to hurt a cancer victim for having cancer, and it was wrong to hurt a tentacle Briton for having tentacles. Maybe he could punch their minds into changing. Or he went through his options, trying to think of what Father Menchu would want him to do. What Asante and Francis might say. He thought about Sal telling him he had to make his own decisions. Liam turned to face the crowd, coated in fake ichor, raising his sword high above his head. We've all been hurt by magic, he said. Me, more than most of you, I reckon. But the answer isn't to turn into bullies, punching the ones who need help the most. You're afraid? You feel helpless? Join the freaking club. But there are a few things you can do to be safer, and if you're done being idiots for the day, I'd like to teach you what they are. Five. The team gathered in the gym to watch the news that night. A few of Menchu's parishioners had teamed up to donate some comfortable furniture for the teacher's lounge, all of it banged up, shredded by cats, or otherwise 30 years past its glory days. Even the television was a cathode ray tube model, easily the size of an oven. Liam considered working with it a personal affront and muttered complaints to himself every second he had to spend on forcing it to work amicably with any modern input feed. But now they all watched the news together like a sitcom family from another era. The picture was grainy and the gum and duct tape cable connection kept pixelating and cutting out, but they were riveted. The news showed some of Libby's footage. 
Liam with his sword, which looked disappointingly like a curtain rod on film. The mob of protesters with their angry shouting and hastily made signs. A few of Francis's friends lining up to face off with them. The increasing tension over how to deal with this year's changes in London came to a flashpoint today, said the anchor, a sober man with dignified gray sideburns. But the actions of one brave man may prove to be a turning point in healing our shared wounds. The screen showed Liam in profile, speaking earnestly about magic and danger. Liam studied the image, wishing he'd thought to put a little more time into shaving that morning. He'd missed a spot right by the curve of his jaw, and the way the light fell made it look like he was wearing penny earrings. Grace laughed out loud. Look at you, all grown up. Shut up, Liam said. You did good work, Liam, said Manchu. He clapped Liam on the shoulder. I couldn't be more proud. Thank you, father. Liam ducked his head. That means a lot from you. A new face appeared on the screen. Hilary Sansoni. A hush fell over the room. Sansoni smiled blandly at the interviewer. Of course, it's important for people to know how to safely deal with these unusual experiences, she said, but we don't need an army of vigilantes taking matters into their own hands. The only safe move is to run and then call in the proper authorities. There are people who can help, and these so-called book burners aren't anyone you can rely on. Sal booed and threw a pillow at Sansoni's placid face. The screen cut away to Liam, saying, I'm serious, we don't really burn any books. And then a commercial for a grocery store. Asante was still staring at the screen, rubbing a finger along her lips thoughtfully. We should work with the schools to develop a program, she said. You were right, Liam, really right. Ignorance has become vulnerability, not safety. What would that program even look like? asked Grace, beyond don't touch things that don't look right. Well, they teach stop, drop, and roll back home, Sal said. There has to be something like that we could do. I'm going to give this some serious thought, said Asante. Putting up sandbags is one way to help people deal with the tide rising, but so is teaching people how to swim. Liam's phone buzzed in his pocket. The caller ID said it was a laundromat, and he recognized the name. It was only a few blocks away and had a rock-solid wash-and-fold service. Liam wrinkled his nose, thinking it a bit late to call if someone had forgotten to go get the team's laundry for the week, but he picked it up anyway. Hello? Hello. Are you the book burner, the one on TV? I got your number from a friend. The voice on the other side was a young woman. Her voice was thin and nasal, nervous, so her vocal cords were tight. She sniffled into the phone like she'd been crying. The one who helps people with their magic problems? I suppose I am. And I suppose you're calling about a magic problem? Yes, yes, the woman sniffed again. My name is Jillian. My family owns the Frower and Sons laundromat, and the washing machines have been giving us some trouble. Sal raised an eyebrow at him in question. Liam waved her off. What kind of trouble? It sounds like they're chanting. And if you put on the fresh laundry and close your eyes, you see visions. Visions. Manchu looked up at this and pulled a pad and pen out of a drawer in the side table. He handed them to Liam. Jillian whispered like she could barely bring herself to describe it. Knives and blood, rivers and oceans of blood. She sounded like the personification of misery itself. Laundry machines chanting about oceans of blood? That was a new one. 
Liam began to scribble down notes. Can't imagine you're seeing much business then. Certainly not. Jillian sniffled again. Can you help us? Likely. I'll have to come take a look before I promise anything. Really? Oh, we would be so grateful, I can't even tell you. What do you charge? We'll pay anything. Money's no object. Liam paused, the pen still in the air, at a loss for how to answer. How much do I charge? Uh, what do you think is reasonable? The night was going well enough until the whispers started. They were quiet, just a breath in his ear. But Eduardo shouldn't have been able to hear anything over the pounding electronica beat, and certainly not the sound of his last name, as clearly as if it were being chanted directly inside his brain. Zampop, Zampop, Zampop. Nobody here should know his name. He surveyed the Brooklyn Dance Club and tried to persuade himself he was in no danger. There was no scent of magic here, just a melange of beer and cologne, threaded with a rich fabric of pheromones. He had never been any good at lying to himself. He tried to get the attention of the bartender to order another drink, but he might as well have been invisible. No otherworldly explanation needed for that. He'd already figured out the bartender was a dick. The lights flickered. A young woman staggered into Eduardo, and he tensed, but she was already apologizing, laughing, turning away. Not a threat. He slipped his hand into his jeans pocket anyway and ran his thumb along the stone figurine inside. He felt a gathering of power somewhere to the south of the club. It drew him like a magnet drew iron. Well, if he was going to fight, he'd rather have some more fortification. He banged his fist on the bar, and the bartender's attention snapped toward him. Did you need something? He asked, snide. Gin and tonic, noise, Eduardo said. He left a crumpled bill on the counter and threw back the drink, all in one. No ice, but it still managed to be watered down. The bartender really was a dick. No time for that argument, though. He shouldered through the crowd and out into the street. It was quiet here. No cars, no foot traffic. Good, no bystanders to get hurt. He walked toward the gathering of power, the stone figurine clenched in his fist. Each streetlight popped and went dark as he passed. The pigeons began to follow him, though they should have been asleep at this hour. They hopped along the building tops above him, sometimes brave enough to sail across the street over his head, but none of them drew close enough to mean anything. They just wanted to watch. A sense of magic filled his nose, earth and smoke, meat and rot. He reached his destination, a playground. There were signs and signals drawn on the blacktop and chalk, and through them he could just see a twisting shape of flame and hunger. The hair on his arms stood up as the energy present here coursed through him. It was an abomination. If this doorway were left until dawn, then whatever demon was on the other side would be freed into the world. Maybe it was meant to devour children, or maybe Eduardo himself, or those close to him. It had to be stopped. Eduardo knew it was a trap, of course. He was meant to stop this creature and, in so doing, weaken himself. But he had no choice but to walk into it now. Well, everyone had to die sometime. I'm here, he announced to the stars. Let's get started. He reached a foot forward and scuffed out one of the lines. It was like touching a live electrical line. 
Pain coursed through him as if his bones had been turned to acid. The demon screamed and clawed at him. As the portal closed, the creature tore away chunks of his spirit, shredded his shields and wards. If this were not a trap, it would end here, uh, but just as he expected, all around him a convergence of faceless figures. There were a dozen of them, and they had blocked him so he could not run. The pigeons cooed among themselves, perhaps placing bets on the outcome of this encounter. Eduardo raised his figurine high, trying to collect scraps of starlight into something he could use. They had picked the right night for this trap. There was no moonlight to speak of. He could not raise a shield or a weapon, but he could lay a curse. My murderer will meet justice, he said. Power swept out from him and settled on his assailants. And then he closed his eyes and waited. It wasn't long. Something like a stone hit him, then another, and another. His back, his head, his shoulder. He fell to his knees, and then on his face. Eventually, the stone stopped. Eduardo's blood seeped into the concrete, quickly, and then slowly. The pigeons went back to sleep. You are listening to Book Burners. Created and produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Book Burners is created by Max Gladstone and written by Max Gladstone, Margaret Dunlap, Murr Lafferty, Andrea Phillips, and Brian Francis Slattery. Executive produced by Molly Barton and Julian Yap. Performed by XE Sands. Audio production by Amanda Rose Smith, with additional editing by Corey Barton. Original theme by Hashem Asadolahi, featuring Jody Redditch Ferber and mixed by Justin Morrell. Cover art by Annie Wu. Executive in charge for Realm, Mary Asadolahi. Find more shows like Book Burners by following Realm on Apple Podcasts. Spotify or at realm.fm.